Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CDH Conversations podcast. My name is Setu Kumalo. I'm an associate in the construction and engineering sector here at Cliff Decker. I'm joined by my director, Mr. Clive Ramsey. Hi, Clive. Hi, Setu. Yes, welcome, listeners. We've had uh, our podcast now on both adjudication and mediation, and now we get down to the issue of arbitration. Thanks, Clive. I think we'll go through this one with quite a few points, Clive, and I think the first point to discuss is what an arbitration is. So if you could offer some guidance on that. An arbitration, in again, in general terms, is the appoint both parties agreeing to appoint a third party to preside over the dispute. Now, when I say a third party, it could be a single arbitrator, it could be a panel of uh, three arbitrators, and we can call that that panel whether one or three, the tribunal. And the parties then appoint an arbitrator to consider their dispute. The difference to uh, on the mediation, where there's no decision made by a mediator, or adjudication, where a decision is made by the adjudicator, but so far as one party is not satisfied with the outcome of that dispute, they can deliver a notice of dissatisfaction and proceed to arbitration. Arbitration, by its nature, and in many cases, is a final and binding process. So the arbitrator, in hearing the matter, would make a decision, and we call it an award, and hand down that award in favor of party A or party B. And that, in most cases, in, in contractually, most people agree, is a final and binding decision, and finally binding on the parties to that arbitration. Thanks, Clive. On the topic of an arbitration being final and binding, does that mean, Clive, that the party that has unfortunately had an award given against them, does that mean they have no appeal or review mechanisms? Insofar as if the contract provides that the award by the arbitrator is final and binding, there is no appeal on that decision. So you can't appeal internally within the arbitration process, and you can't appeal to a court on the, your dissatisfaction with the outcome of, of the arbitration. What you are entitled to is a review process. And for the purpose of this podcast, we won't get into discussing of when you can review an arbitrator's decision, but that is your mechanism to be able to challenge the award that has gone against you. But the basis of review is very limited in our law, even though you'll find that there's many cases, in particular recent years or so, where arbitrators' awards have been challenged on review. And we recently did an article on that particular issue. Sure. Thanks, love. I've always understood arbitration to be a voluntary process between the parties. Could you give us a bit of insight as to what that means? And then voluntary with, with respect to the appointment of an arbitrator as well as the choice of rules that are used for the arbitration and the seat and applicable law. If you could just expand on those points. Certainly. When we say that the arbitration is a voluntary process in construction contracts, and I'm going to say all construction contracts, because I've yet to come across a one that doesn't have an arbitration process, unless it relates to particular government contracts where sometimes the recourse is to litigation, in other words, to court. As a general proposition, and if you look through your general forms and your standard forms of contract, all of them provide for arbitration. So when we say it's, it's a voluntary process, once you agree to the terms and conditions applicable to the construction project, you are bound by the arbitration clause. The arbitration clause will invariably provide 
a set of rules by which you will conduct the arbitration. And if it wants to do equate that to almost the high court rules for litigation in a court, there are sets of rules that are then agreed to be applicable in the arbitration process. By way of example, the Arbitration Foundation of South Africa, as AFSA, or the Association of Arbitrators, both have sets of rules for the conducting of arbitrations. Internationally, you would have the ICC rules, you could have LCIA rules, UNCTRAL rules. All of those have formulated set of rules on how the arbitration process is to run. In your contracts, you would normally agree upfront before you sign the contract as to what rules will be applicable. And those, when the arbitration process commences, would govern the manner in which the arbitration is to be conducted. The, the second point is the seat of the arbitration. In contracts, particular contracts outside of the borders of South Africa, you may find that the laws of that particular country may be applicable. Alternatively, that the laws of, for instance, uh, England and Wales might be applicable to the construction contract. That might be in regard to what we call the substantive law governing the contract. But you may say that the seat of the arbitration would be, let's say, South Africa. Um, and you could say it was Santon as an example. But that then means the procedural laws of the seat of the arbitration, in other words, South African law, procedural law, would be applicable. Even though the substantive law remains the law or the governing law of the contract itself. I hope that provides uh, sufficient explanation. That definitely does, Clive. I just want to take you back to one point. I mean, you mentioned that you, you're yet to come across a construction contract that doesn't have an arbitration clause. But what's the position if, for, let's say, for example, a bespoke contract is concluded between two parties and for some odd reason an arbitration clause is not included in that agreement? Is it possible for the parties to conclude a separate arbitration agreement? Yes. There's the, the straight answer is yes, so they can. The difficulty is that once we get to a dispute process, you've now got to reach consensus between the parties as to an arbitration process. And if I'm the defendant in a matter and the claimant comes to me and says, I'd now like to go to arbitration as opposed to going through the high court and issuing a summons for the dispute, and I'm the defendant, I may take the view that being in court for the next three years, as opposed to an arbitration process, which in many cases is faster, I may say, happy to go to court. But the, the, as I say, the, the straight answer to, to the question is, yes, you can always agree to go to arbitration. In government contracts, you have to be careful that the government uh, organization may not be entitled to agree to go to arbitration. You may be required to go to court. But two commercial parties can always agree to bypass a court process and go to arbitration. Thanks for clarity on that, Clive. Let's move to the arbitrator. Could you give us an overview as to what the role of the arbitrator is and when, when in an arbitration or when faced with an arbitration clause, what sort of considerations one might want to take into account when nominating an arbitrator? It's a difficult question, Setu. It's, it's one that comes up in every matter where we end up having to appoint arbitrators of clients saying to us, who's the best arbitrator? Who shall we get as an arbitrator? As a general rule is that if the matter involves legal issues which are required to be decided upon, your best is to obtain or get the services of an arbitrator or appoint an arbitrator who has a legal background. 
So every uh, organization like AFSA, Association, ICT, UTSATRAL, LCI have a list of arbitrators. And those arbitrators, if so far it's a legal issue, would come from the ranks of senior counsel in a South African context, would come from the ranks of retired judges to sit as, as arbitrators. Where the matter has a very technical, let's say, quantification or that there is an extension of time and, and one has to determine that extension of time. So a scheduler or planner, expert planner, forensic planner, might be somebody who might be appropriate to have to either assist the arbitrator, a single arbitrator, or to form a member of a panel of arbitrators. So you could have a situation where you have the chairperson of the panel of arbitrators being a retired judge or a senior counsel, and you could have then another member being somebody who has a background in scheduling, in other words, forensic planning, and you could have another member of that tribunal, somebody who has quantity surveying expertise, in other words, calculating the quantum that the parties might be entitled to. So sometimes it does bode well to have a balance of expertise on a tribunal. But my go-to position, and it might be because we're lawyers, is to have a retired judge to be your arbitrator if you've got a single arbitrator panel. Thanks for that, Clive. When in the previous episodes, we've discussed sort of the procedure a party would need to follow in order to bring its claim and what's and how a defense to that would look. Could you give an overview as to how a claimant would bring its claim in an arbitration and how a defendant would put up its defense, as well as how evidence is led in arbitration proceedings? Certainly, um, Sita. Yeah, we'll try and keep it as brief as we can because we could spend a, a long, long time discussing that. Um, as a, Again, and I look, always premise this on generally what happens, there's always curveballs and particular rules or particular clauses in contracts that may change this. But as a general proposition, if a dispute arises and the parties are unable to resolve that dispute, either through amicable resolution between the respective representatives of the parties, through an adjudication process, mediation process, and you end up at arbitration, one party would set out the basis of their claim. And uh, that would form what would become known as a statement of claim. So Unlike a court where you've got a plaintiff and a defendant, in an arbitration process, you have a claimant and a respondent, sometimes called a defendant as well. The claimant will prepare a statement of claim. That statement of claim will set out what their cause of action is against the defendant, setting out all particularity that's required to support the claimant's claim. Normally, in terms of rules applicable to arbitration, that claimant is required to attach all relevant documents to their statement of claim in support of the claim. The defendant then has an opportunity to deliver what's called a statement of defense, and the statement of defense will set out their defense to the claimant's claim, raise any defenses that they wish to in that statement of defense, and there may even be that they may have a separate counterclaim against the claim that's been instituted by the claimant. If we take it that there isn't any counterclaim, normally the claimant would then have an opportunity of replying to the statement of defence, and that would be what in court is called pleadings. The pleadings would have closed. In other words, both parties will have solidified their particular positions both as to their claim and as to their defence. 
normally just taking one step back before that process commences, normally there's a meeting that takes place called a pre-arbitration meeting where the parties meet before the arbitrator. And a timeline is then set for the parties to deliver a statement of claim, deliver a statement of defense, and a reply thereto. And that's normally done, as I say, upfront before the submissions by both parties are delivered. In addition, in that first meeting, if possible, the parties would try and agree when witness statements would be provided, fact from the expert witness statements, and even a hearing date. Even if it's some day hence, it's always beneficial for the parties to agree that date. And the main reason is practical. Advocates, retired judges, whoever your arbitrator is, their diaries fill up. And if you've got a relatively lengthy or complicated arbitration, you're going to want to allocate time for the hearing of that matter. So going back to though the submissions have been provided and exchanged between the parties, normally what's required in arbitration, and most arbitrators these days insist on it, is that the parties are to deliver factual witness statements. So that means that the evidence that a particular witness of fact is going to give at the arbitration, that evidence is exchanged between the parties in advance of the arbitration. So both parties' positions are known in advance so that it is meant to save time in the actual arbitration hearing. The other thing is that after the submissions have been exchanged, there's usually a discovery process. Unlike in court process, the arbitration process of discovery should be truncated quite simply because all relevant documents should have already been attached to statement of claim and statement of defense. So we then got the discovery has been done, the factual witness statements have been exchanged between the parties, and at that stage, the parties would have decided whether they're going to exchange or need or require expert evidence. Many times in construction contracts and construction disputes, there's a requirement for, let's say, a scheduler, forensic uh, planner. There may be a need for a quantity surveyor to give evidence uh, as well. What happens then is both experts are required to deliver what are called expert summaries of the evidence they're going to give at the hearing of the matter. That's exchanged between the parties, and the experts are then required to meet, to exchange their views where they disagree, where they agree, and then to prepare a schedule of what they agree upon and don't agree upon. The purpose of that is to try and narrow the issues between the experts. Always remembering that the experts function in an arbitration as it is in court is to assist the arbitrator to understand the matter. Because going back to when we said how we choose an arbitrator, you could have a senior counsel who has a good knowledge of construction contracts, but can't be expected to have forensic planning knowledge may have dealt with matters where that was an issue, but the intricacies of a planning or scheduler is something that an expert gives evidence on and guides the arbitrators to, as to why the arbitrator should make a particular finding. Once those are exchanged, the next is really to prepare a bundle of the relevant documents and for the arbitration hearing to take place. You ask the question, sir, to us how that evidence is led, and it becomes very important why the witness statements then become relevant. Insofar as these proper witness statements have been produced, it is merely a case of a factual witness getting into the witness box and then confirming the contents of the statement that has already been delivered. So you don't lead that witness as you would in, in, in the normal course through each and every one of the facts. 
what the witness gets in confirms the contents of their statement that it is true and correct. And then the other side, in, let's call it the defendant, then cross-examines that factual witness based upon that witness statement. And the same applies to your experts. And that's why you have those statements in advance. That's the procedure in very general terms set in, in, in quite a short uh, in a short time. <laughs> sure, Clive. And, and just to round that off, let's fast forward to it. An award has been given. Once a party has been given a favorable award, how do they go about enforcing that? And and in that respect, Clive, if you could just shed light on how you would do that in a normal local award that's given, as well as the enforceability of international arbitration awards within South Africa. It's one of those, I can say, being on the winning end in many matters, is that unless you've got a party at the end of that award who's prepared to then say, fine, I, I lost, here's the money. Unfortunately, what one finds is that certain of the parties, when you say, I have an award, please pay in accordance with the award, say, no, I'm not going to pay. For that award to be enforceable, it has to be made in order of court. So what you would then do is you have to approach the court on an application to the court. When I say an application, it's a notice of motion in which you ask the court for certain relief. In other words, to make the arbitrator's award an order of court. And you support that with an affidavit where you set out the facts and attach the award that's been made by the arbitrator. There is a basis to oppose that application, but it's on a very limited basis in terms of our law, and I, I won't get into to the reasons at this point. So it's an enforcement application. Once the court, the judge makes a decision that the arbitration award is enforceable, then it's a court order, and you can then execute on that court order. You can then, through the auspices of the sheriff of the court, go and execute against assets of the defendant in accordance with the award that's been made in your favor as the claimant. So enforcement of the award, if it's it's an award handed down in South Africa, um, you can do that. In regard to international awards, the South African courts do recognize those awards and will enforce those awards and be the very same basis upon which you would approach the court on an enforcement application. And there's certain procedures that are required where it's an international award as opposed to a local award. And we're more than happy to give the listeners and the clients advice on those issues, having been involved both in local enforcement of awards and on behalf of international law firms or international clients wishing to enforce their arbitration awards in the South African jurisdiction. Thanks, Clive. And then lastly, Clive, just as a, a general comment and in your experience, I mean, there's a big drive, I think, across the continent to have Africa recognized as a seat of arbitration. What would your opinions be on how South Africans have taken to the concept of arbitration and are putting their hand up to be one of the front runners on the continent for the recognition as a seat? So it's, it's, it's a very controversial issue in Africa. I've sat on panels, an ICC panel, where that was the, the topic that was debated. As Africans in Africa, why do we always fall back to have matters heard in jurisdictions of London, Paris, uh, Geneva, even Dubai? Why are we doing that? Why are we not allowing matters that originate from Africa to be heard in Africa? The Arbitration Foundation of South Africa is one of the top arbitration facilities in Africa. It is one of the busiest arbitration facilities in Africa. And if one has a look at that in, in, in context of 
um, South Africa and making South Africa a seat of an arbitration dispute that arises elsewhere in Africa, there's absolutely no reason why one shouldn't. We've got in various jurisdictions in Africa, there are internationally recognized rules for the conducting of arbitration, and you have very experienced arbitrators in those jurisdictions as well that can be chosen to act as arbitrators. It is something that as a firm, being proudly an African firm, that we want to see more of the arbitrations remaining in Africa and being dealt with in our continent, as opposed to automatically thinking that if it's dealt with in Europe, it's better dealt with than in Africa. So I think AFSA is, is ahead of the game on that. I think AFSA is more than capable of dealing with any type of arbitration. I, I don't have all the statistics, but there's a substantial amount of international arbitrations being dealt with in South Africa through the auspices of, for instance, AFSA. And hopefully that will grow and continue, so too, that you know, we can see ourselves as one of the chosen seats for, for arbitrations in, in Africa, South Africa being one of those, uh, whether it's Santon, Cape Town, Durban, doesn't matter, but being one of the, the seats for the arbitration. Sure. Well, thanks, Tom. I think as a junior practitioner, that's something that we're, we're hoping happens and, and looks forward to. Well, I think so, too. I think it's, it's been great, to, uh, and thank you for the assistance and the preparation going into this. I think to the listeners as a construction team at CDH, if there's issues that you think could add and add value to your businesses, we're more than happy to conduct podcasts on any topics relating to construction engineering. We're hoping to do a podcast on guarantees by one of our other partners and senior associate and on the different guarantees, whether it's performance, retention, advance payment, differences and enforcement of those guarantees. So please look out for that. We'll be trying to roll that out all time permits during the month of June. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. And thank you, Sid. Thanks, Clive. The views and information expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily present those of the firm. All content is provided for general purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. We make no representations, warranties or guarantees, whether expressed or implied, that the content on our podcast is accurate, complete, up-to-date or reflects the current law. We accept no responsibility for any loss or damage, whether direct or consequential, arising from reliance on the information which is presented here.